Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough, and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D S T L D. You get, like, brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FARRELL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. Hooray for me. If you like the uh, band playing there, that's uh, Les Blanks. They do my theme song there. They have, you can go to lesblanks.com, check out more of their music. They're awesome. If you haven't listened to my show before, it is uh, just what the conversation there implies. It's a chat with me and usually someone super duper interesting and uh, who's been influential in the world. Uh, today I speak with Dave Archer, who's a great artist. Um, <clears throat> you've seen some of his stuff in uh, one of those Star Trek movies, and he paints uh, with a Tesla coil, and uh, we talk about that and how how one does that without, um, I don't know, getting electrocuted? <laughs> I don't know much about these things. Uh, so we'll get to that conversation in a moment. Uh, I'm just sitting here hoping my dog doesn't... Uh, Wine. Every time I bust out the uh, the recorder and a microphone, he starts crying at me, uh, and I'm usually usually because I, I do my my podcast over the phone a lot of times. So he'll come and whine, and I'll have to like throw things across the apartment. So it might seem like I'm intently listening a lot of times, but I'm like uh, waving my hand at my dog, throwing things, um, you know, doing the best I can to. Uh, Get him to be quiet, but he's being quiet. He's staring at me like a creep. My dog kind of has a uh, stalker creep vibe because he he will just he'll just stare at me like he's doing it right now. Like if if I was a a young woman at a cafe, and my little fuzzy bearded dog was a, a like a full grown man, uh, that 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 girl would be uh, quite nervous, quite nervous. Um, yeah, so there's that. Um, I was in uh, New York and D.C. this weekend. I, you know, I really love New York, but Jesus Christ, I don't know how people do it. 
I you just eighty. I took within three hours. I blew eighty bucks. I don't. I had nothing to show for it except for pizza. That's all I. That's all I had any recollection of. I don't know. It's very strange. Um, I guess I don't have uh, much to say this week. It's I've been you know I'm I'm really working on that book and I just kind of been you know other than doing some road shows with David Kackner, I've just been kind of in a uh, oh this is something exciting though I did when I did the show in D.C. I mentioned my podcast I got woos people wooed at my podcast so I I'm, I feel like then I must be doing something right I hope so anyway. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, I'll talk to you. Uh, it, this, let's just get to the conversation with uh, Dave Archer. I one time had a long conversation with someone trying to figure out who they were. It ended up being very embarrassing. Did it turn out to be somebody you thought it uh, somebody else? Yeah, I was. I, they were talking to me like I knew them, so I didn't want to be appear to be a ridiculous fool. So I pretended like I knew them too, but it went way too far, you know. And uh, <laughs> I kept thinking they were going to say something like, uh, "Give me a hint or a clue," and then I could work their name in, you know, because I didn't want to. Since I'd been so familiar now for like 10 minutes jabbering away with this person trying to figure out who they were, I would have felt completely <laughs> humiliated to admit I didn't know who they were. <laughs> I, was saying, I was saying to a friend the other day that everyone in L.A. is so afraid of not knowing who people are that we should just start randomly <laughs> going up to people and being like, hey! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because everybody here would probably, especially if you kind of vaguely look like you could be some sort of idiot in the uh, in the showbiz world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they really they come they come right out and ask you. That's are you what what do you do? Are you in the business? That's true. Did the person who thought they knew you were they possibly a a fan of your work? No, actually, it ended it ended up to be it ended up being the only. Um, obscene phone call I ever got in my life, and it was from a woman. Really? And it blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. So to end it, I finally said, so what were, uh, uh, What are you doing right now? And I thought, man, sooner or later this woman is going to tell me. She's going to ma- mention a mutual friend or something. And she said, well, I'm sitting in my bedroom in front of the big long mirror. And I went, oh, God. Where's this going? <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it was. It what? was. Then I didn't know what to do because did I know this person? Were they putting me on? Uh, they sounded like I should know them. Their voice sounded exactly like somebody I knew, but I couldn't figure out who. Was it pre? Somebody I'd met. Right. Was it pre-internet world? Was it what? Like pre-internet? So like, I don't know. Because I would think like people, maybe they still do, but they don't make obscene phone calls anymore because everyone could track who they are. Right, right, right. It was it was before uh, 
those uh, were in much in use at all. It was back in uh, 1970. Uh... And as I still remember when it was, because I can see myself standing in that in that little apartment I had, standing there, uh, and I remember also there was a bunch of popcorn on the floor. <laughs> Because I had gotten I had gotten so drunk for like two weeks that all I did was drink and I didn't I didn't eat anything and um and so I was hungry and I was starving and I looked through the house and the only thing I could find was a bag of popcorn and I was too sick from the boozing to uh, get the butter and the salt or anything like that. And I had like four pots with no lids on them, so I poured a fourth of the bag in each pot, turned the burners on high, and let it blow. And when it when it flew all over the the counter and the sink, I went and got the broom and swept it into a pile. And I was so sick, I got down on my hands and knees, you know, like Charles Bukowski, and ate it off the floor like a cow. That's uh, <laughs> it's a great story. And then the phone rang. Then the phone rang. It's true. And then the phone rang, and it was this obscene phone call. I was just trying to find a place. I was in bare feet, and I was I was looking down at this popcorn, and while she was talking to me, I was remembering, oh, my God, I remember eating that popcorn. Oh, my God, I got down on the floor and ate it like a cow. <laughs> I mean, I think all of, I, you know... You could. I'm. I'm trying to think of what I've done if I've ever eaten something off the floor in my in my drunkenness. Uh, I've done some pretty stupid things, that's for sure. <laughs> Maybe I'm, I was. I was always. A, God, I was an outrageous character that way. I'd be, you know, munching on the popcorn and saying, "Yeah, Jack Kerouac, right about this." <laughs> were you Were you purposely trying to one up him? No, no, I was. Just so piteous that I was thinking, top a road story or two. I don't know. I probably will never tell anybody. Now I've told you. <laughs> well, I'm a. a it's, it's a great way to start this off. <laughs> uh, We're rolling now, right? Yeah, it's, I uh, hope you're okay with that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I just I did want to get before we get into a lot of things. I do want to get I did because when I saw I've seen videos of your work and you work with a Tesla coil, which I don't think I've. Are you the only dude in the world who paints with a Tesla coil? Is that safe to say? Pretty much that I know of. I've been copied um, for my content, my space art, and I've been copied on glass for space art. And I've had rivals do such things as light them on fire with lighter fluid and things like that. Because I light mine on fire also with the the arcs light the paint on fire. And um, so you got a million arcs going into this watery paint, but then I can put a little methyl alcohol in it. And you have arc flambe, I guess you call it. But, um, <laughs> That's a... it, it, it's pretty cool. It. Um, it came because this guy was making these, he made this little coil and he had this idea, well, hey man, you ought to try painting with this. It was just very innocent serendipity. And that was in uh, 1970. And um, 
that was uh, a hit from the very beginning of it. Um, it captured people and it captured me. Uh, it, was, it became more refined, better machines. I ended up with a guy who was the protege of Ken Strickfadden, and Ken Strickfadden was the engineer who built all the Tesla coils for the movies in Hollywood from his first movie was Frankenstein, black and white old years ago. I got a picture of Ken being uh, honored by the Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Academy in a huge auditorium in L.A. for all of his work with electrical effects. His last movie was The Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks. And... Um, so the guy that uh, built my coils was his protege, Ken Strickfadden's protege. His name was Bill Weissock. He passed away here about a year ago. And uh, Bill made me the most wonderful painting machines. Uh, so I'm still at it. I, I have a student I work with. I'm handing over the equipment to him when I uh, leave this mortal coil. I'm going to hand him uh, another coil. And in the meantime, he... He's learning everything I know, and then hopefully he'll find uh, you know new breakthroughs and stuff. You can one man can only do so much. Now, what kind of art were you doing before you discovered the Tesla coil? I was trained by a painter in North Beach in the Beat Generation. I was trained by Rick Barton in the art of Chinese line painting, which is an exacting technique that trains the eye really, really well. I highly recommend it for every young artist. What we did was we painted everything from life for many years, uh, and we carried little books with us. We carried uh, various. Uh, we carried a yatate, which is a Japanese painting instrument, in our belts. Uh, acted as a instant. You could, it looked like a pipe. It had a bowl with raw silk in it and ink, and the ink would stay in the bowl in that ink. Then you would uh, had a handle that was hollow. Inside was the brush. The thing mine was made of bronze and weighed about a half a pound. It was made in the Tokugawa period of Japanese uh, fine craft, and it was a really fine made piece. Uh, we all had those in in North Beach. Uh, we had a Rick had a school. He called it, kind of half-jokingly, the Academia Vinciana. And um, he taught this kind of line painting just by uh, being around him. He insisted you do something if you're going to hang out with him. And so everybody ended up painting line paintings. And it was a great way to train the eye because if you're painting from life and you're going to paint it on a piece of paper in ink with a little pointy brush, you damn well better take a good look at what you're going to paint next. If you sit down to paint a plant in a restaurant because you're tired of trying to paint people because they move, uh, and you say, oh, I'm just going to paint this plant, then you've got to really study the plant and how all the leaves go over the other leaves. Because if you paint the wrong leaf, you can't paint over it. You, so you have to do this mental deconstruction in your head a thousand times when you're painting a plant. 
to see how everything goes over the next thing. Ah, oh, that little thing goes over that little thing, you know. And uh, that trains the eye to see. It's it's kind of a bummer later because you've got such a highly trained eye. You start seeing all the warts on your friends' faces that you didn't see before. It's really awful. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great, though. I mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting because I don't think people... St- I, you know, you're being trained to look extremely close at everything, and you, to, that must change the yeah. way you look, view yeah. the entire world. Changes everything. And then it translates into your writing really beautifully because if you are, if you observe for years, you observe the, how the cigarette butts in the ashtray, and you're painting because we always painted in these cafes. There would be eight of us at two tables pulled together in Foster's at Polk and Sutter Street, Beat Generation, really cool guys, you know, uh, all artists sitting at this table, all with a sketchbook, all with a yatate, and all with uh, uh, Chinese uh, Asian type round, finely pointed brush. And we would paint each other, but we would also paint everything that was on the tables. Ashtrays, cigarette butts, sugar shakers, salt and pepper shakers. Always all that stuff was there. And then we would paint our own hands holding the brushes. And this was all you had to observe, observe, observe. Well, later, I asked Annie Lamott, the the famous author, I was taking her one night to to be interviewed by Evan White, I think, in in, uh, San Francisco at a big TV station. She had a book out, a bestseller called My Son Sam's First Year uh, Operating Instructions. My Son Sam's First Year. And I took her in the car uh, and drove her down from San Rafael to this. And I had a chance to pick her brain about writing because I loved her writing. And uh, she said that the... the, uh, problem people have with writing is they they try to generalize it's really about the nitty-gritty detail when you write about a nitty-gritty detail like a, a spot of mustard on a regimental necktie a silk regimental necktie or the way the shoestrings have been tied retied you know uh it little nitty-gritty details the mole on the eyelid of the waitress uh, when you see those things and write about them, then everybody identifies. And I learned more in that drive about writing up and back than uh, anyway. I didn't have to take her writing courses. <laughs> <laughs> that drive saved you some dough. I'm a quick, te- yeah, I'm a quick learner, man. If I'm in the car with somebody famous who's really cool and has a bestseller and I'm on the way with them, I'm not going to miss a beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that you when said, you... Just think about it. No, it's, if, if, you, if, if somebody chews their fingernails, and but they're dressed immaculately, and you write that you notice they chew their fingernails, that's such a nitty-gritty detail, and it says so much. It just speaks volumes. Um, whereas if you just generally describe them, uh, it says nothing. Yeah, and I people s- will start running after one page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And I've looked since then, and all the authors do that, all the great authors. That, you know, it's the nitty-gritty detail. It's not the overgeneral. It's not the general overtone of the times, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah I, he says it was... It was the worst. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Then he launches right into nitty gritty details. Yeah. When when you first started doing the uh, Tesla coil, were you still in San Francisco when that started? I was in. I had left North Beach after ten years. I had just come in from a, a sailing voyage across the Pacific on the world's largest. Four and a half gaff rig schooner, the Goodwill, and we had put in in San Francisco. And I decided it was time. I'd gotten invited to move up to Marin County, so I did. I went up there and uh, became a greenskeeper on a golf course, and got married, and and had a, my first child in Marin County. And. Uh, it was a pretty good times. We Ron Russell and I had teamed up to figure out how to make these paintings on glass that they'd been done since uh, for thousands of years. Really, the Romans actually did some with gold leaf and stuff on the back of ancient glass. So we found there was quite a a history, but not very many artists in any given time did glass paintings. Because you're painting reverse glass. You're painting on the back side of a sheet of clear glass. So you say, well, that's silly. What's the back side? It's clear glass. There's, they're both the back side. Well, if, as soon as you put a mark of paint on it, if that's what it's, then you can designate it. Well, this will be the back side. It's like a mirror where you put silver on glass and then you, a thin layer of silver, and then you put paint, gray paint over it. And when you look in, you have a mirror. It's actually the metal silver. And uh, so when you put paint on the back of the glass, it's just like that. It, it just goes right on the... But everything you do has to be done inside out and backwards. And then you, the final picture is not viewed through with light coming through it. A lot of people think because it's glass that light would come through it. It's hung on the wall exactly like an oil painting. And then you light it real well with special lights... Um, like those ones they use in galleries are called halogen lights. You put a few of those little uh, gem-like lights on the painting, and it it reflects light in a most incredible way. And they look third-dimensional because I'm painting planets and stars and gaseous clouds, and, and uh, they look. You'll see nose prints where people try to get real close to the moon and look around behind. <laughs> <laughs> what attracted you to painting uh, space? Space was uh, like uh, strictly, in a way, it was strictly a matter of survival. We had founded this studio to study glass painting, and we needed to make something that people actually bought so we could keep on going. So we... Uh, we did hundreds of experiments, which we later threw away in the Sonoma dump. We sailed them, these paintings off into the sea of trash and seagulls, and, and a guy would roll over them with this big machine, and we'd cheer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish I had all those paintings now. Um, 
but uh, we thought they were pretty dreadful. Uh, but one of the things that w- we discovered was it made a mighty fine space painting. And space was, you know, 71. We'd, space era was just starting. And um, we had uh, electricity, which was kind of a science fiction-y thing to be doing. And uh, it was just... It just all came together like serendipity, and what kept us going in that vein uh, was the response of the public was phenomenal. It's phenomenal. We yeah, just, they're, I mean, they're amazing. We did, I'm sorry? Everything we did seemed to sell. And so we got, we tried, we sat down and we made uh, rules, you know. If, if we were going to break our old North Beach ethic of never painting something for money, then we'd better sit down and talk about what the hell we were doing and all the guilt we were feeling. You know, is this all right? And we came up with a good list of uh, of uh, justifications for our action. We we well, the old masters they did all kinds of things for money. They painted portraits they didn't want to paint. They they trimmed the wattles off you know, rich men so they wouldn't have a double chin and gave them a nice look in their portrait. They didn't want to do that. So, you know, and then we got hooked on it. It was funny. We argued about whether we were doing the right thing for a long time, and then we realized that we didn't know anything anyway. And and um, as a matter of fact, we'd stumbled into something that was really, really cool. Whether it was any good or not, it was cool. <clears throat> I asked this really famous artist to come over to my studio and he's an oil painter and look at what I was doing at one point around that time and he looked at everything and he looked at all looked at all the glass the space glass paintings and he was painting space too at the time and he said well but, oh god I was just dying inside oh I just asked this guy I really 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 trusted his opinion and I knew, and I asked him because he's the kind of guy that would tell you what he really thought. And um, he said, uh, what's this? And he pointed to this painting I had done that had a tree in it. It was a space tree. <laughs> <laughs> and it had this little animal sitting in the tree. There was this little tiny, like a monkey, but it was like a space monkey. And he would, and right at the end of his finger was this monkey, and he said, "What is that?" And I said, "It's a space monkey." And he said, "It's way beneath you." And I said, "Well, you don't understand the market we're in. We're we're selling it like, you know, shopping centers and stuff. We're just getting started, and and people love these monkeys." And he says, "I don't care." It, how many monkeys you could sell they're way beneath you never ever paint another one of these fucking monkeys <laughs> and i never did i took his advice i said oh, yeah you're right you know it is kind of kind of I, I i okay i'm pandering i'm pandering so what we decided was to try and make as good a space painting as you possibly make, and that the real trick to making a space painting and making it into an art object 
is where you place things inside the edges of the piece. If the piece is three feet by three feet, where do you put the moons? Uh, so that they're in relationship to the edges of the piece so that and in relationship with each other so that when you have a finished piece it draws you into it and it doesn't let go. It's got power to hold you. It's it's uh and we started using the divine proportion of Pythagoras, the golden section and uh, sacred geometry and we came up with grids and methods of making a, a painting that would hold the viewer in what James Joyce called a state of aesthetic arrest, where they're just standing there and they can't move and they can't even speak. And they're just standing there looking at this painting and they can't, they're just, then that they might actually want that person, you can tell by body language that, that that person might actually end up owning a painting, you know, just from how they first encounter it in a in a sales situation. And so that's what we did. And, and uh, we both made really good lives out of it. I raised a family and uh, have a lot of grandkids and uh, it worked for us. And we, we still, every now and then, we get together and talk and... Uh, we still uh, find ourselves making up new justifications <laughs> for selling out. Well, that's what... Did we sell out? We... You know, well, I guess if we sold out, we tried to do it as best we could. You know, okay, we'll sell out, but let's let's really sell out. You know, let's let's make great art. When did it? Because nobody. It... Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean. I'm just curious. Well, if... I'm not... When, because uh, you were saying like with the beats and, you know, everyone was like, do art uh, not to sell, but, and which is, you know, I mean, I think most people go into art because that's what they want to do. But who did, st where did, that didn't start in that era, did it? Of like, don't, don't sell yourself out. Because I mean. No, I had, I had studied with Phil Paradise when I left high school. I got a scholarship to study with a painter who was doing really well. He was a, a founding member of the California Watercolor School. And I studied with him for two sessions uh, of summers two summers and um he was he was a a fine art painter who made money at it he sold originals to people to collectors and he did magazine covers for such things as the uh oh the i saw him do a magazine cover while i was there and he uh, drugged me over and said look i have this in an old sketchbook i'm pulling it out it's the day of the dead in mexico where i drew this drawing of all these women in the graveyard at night now i'm doing it for this arizona highways magazine for their cover or whatever magazine it was i forget and um i'm getting a thousand dollars for it i never forgot that lesson um yeah it's it's just to do a lot of things it's artist has to do a lot of different things to keep going Keep going. Never get discouraged. Never give up. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, an artistic director I worked with once was like, you know, he's like, there's art and then there's work. And sometimes you have to compromise a little bit and just view it as I'm working and I'm I, so I can fucking eat. <laughs> it's like, and it's but exactly. 
but we, we get so hung up on like the compromise, but it's like it's better to maybe use your talent and make a little dough than I don't know go and then work in an accounting office from nine to five and then you want to hang yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were we were beat generation, so the general idea of beat generation was you never tried to do anything that would appear to be that you were trying to become a name painter or something like climbing or, or uh, like anything like, you know, getting on TV, pushing yourself, say onto TV or pushing yourself onto something. And, uh, that was thought to be really, really uncool. <laughs> but, <laughs> to, but uh, Do you think people actually really, they wanted the notoriety and, did they not? Yeah, it was just a yeah. means of just pretend you did. It. You had to, yeah, you couldn't admit it. You couldn't admit it to your fellow artists because it was thought to be so uncool. But everybody wanted it. So, but they wanted it in a pure way. So they'd say, "Well, somebody'd say, well, look at Alan Ginsberg. You know, his books are selling a lot now.'" You say, "Yeah, but it's true art." And he, he uh, yeah, but he went and did a photo op at the Ganges River for Time, Life magazine. You know, I mean, you know. and um, at that point, it had all broken down. The whole thing had broken down, and people were going back to the land and making their own tofu. You know. <laughs> The whole thing just kind of whole idea, you know, was finally became okay to make a little money. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to you know, it's hard to do it. Sit in a cafe, you do a beautiful drawing, gorgeous drawing of a person sitting at the next table. To sell that drawing to someone is nearly impossible, and yet there are museums today stuffed with drawers, stuffed full of wonderful old drawings of just that that some artist drew while he was sitting in a cafe but that's the kind of stuff that you don't really get recognized for almost ever nobody's going to buy a drawing especially in america a drawing of some stranger sitting at a cafe table uh it's a hard sell it's uh yes yeah, no because i was in san francisco a few weeks ago and have you, I'm, have you been to San Francisco recently? Uh, we we went down to Hollywood to do that thing, Janis Joplin thing, and then we came back up, and what we stopped, um, yeah, we did. We stopped in North Beach so I could show Brent, my student, my old stomping grounds, and I was pretty horrified by the way it had degenerated into it, just nothing. Yeah, because I was just, and I hadn't, I used to, I've been there a bunch, like 20 years ago, and it's even, it's it's changed. So much, and you, I think, you were living in San Francisco, and I think what a lot of people would say I, was it's like golden, like the time to be there. Yeah, yeah, I got there in 1960 and 61. So by 61, I was working. I was 19. No, I was 20, and I was working in a little coffee house on Upper Grand Avenue where I met Janis Joplin, Hoy Axton, David Crosby, all the people that would become famous were in this, you know, Steve Martin did his first show there with an arrow through his head, which he had bought earlier that day at a novelty shop and stuck in his banjo case. 
And in that little place, I was the doorman, and Steve would come in, and he would have to get on stage and play the first set to no audience. He still talks about it today on old talk shows and stuff. And um, the idea was there was a window in front, and I would go out on the front, and we would shill. I would shill. If anybody looked in the window, I'd say, free coffee or chocolate if you'd like to come in. Right now, we're trying to get a few folks in here and get started. Real good banjo player on stage right now, Steve Martin. And they would come in to get their free coffee. And if we could get six or seven heads that people could see from the back through the window, then we could fill the place and start charging $2 door charges. And so Steve was nice enough to call me up. He he called me up uh, when he wrote his book, uh, Born Standing Up. That was, what, five years ago, four years ago. And give him memories of... uh, of the place. One of them that I gave him that he used in the book was there was a sign hanging in the kitchen that said, anyone who gives Janis Joplin money before, anyone who pays Janis Joplin before her final set is fired. (laughs) Any any customer who gives Janis money before the final set is permanently 86, Sylvia. She she owned the place, Sylvia Fennell. And, and, uh, so, yeah, he used that one. But it was a, a really, really amazing time because there were so many people. I mean, you go out on the street, there'd be Tim Harden. He always had his guitar with him, you know. And, hey, man, Dave, Janice, listen to this. What do you think? And he's picking away there, and he starts singing, If I were a carpenter and you were a lady, would you marry me anyway? Would you have my baby? And you're standing there. It's like American history uh, unrolling right in front of you. The whole street was like that. Woody Allen had walked by. Everybody was playing at the clubs. You had Lenny Bruce, Bill Cosby. Everybody was getting their start. Barbara Streisand. Maya Angelou was dancing at the Purple Onion. (laughs) (laughs) It um, was amazing. Because that was, I mean, did those people come, or most of you came because of the beats, but that was like Janis Joplin and stuff. That was sort of like the next era. Did you? Yeah, she came for the beats. She came from Port Arthur, Texas for the beats, and I came from San Luis Obispo for the beats, and we met each other right away. And, um... Because everybody hung around the same little places. It's the only place you could get a... That one place, for instance, Janice got paid um, $2 a night and a hamburger. But the hamburgers were a half a pound and on San Francisco French bread. And it was a good meal. It was big, you know. And And then she could pass the hat. And people liked her a lot. She didn't play guitar or anything, but... She just sang a cappella and passed the hat, and she did pretty good. But it wasn't enough to live on, so she went back to Texas, and then she turned around and came back. Did when you're in those moments, because it's like you hear about it, and you you know, and there's all those people around that are now legendary. Do you go? Do you sort of realize how magical it is at the time, or is it just like, hey, we're living life, and I'm fortunate enough to have wound up around a bunch of really fascinating people? Actually, I was so naive, I kind of thought the whole world was like that. <laughs> my, un- my uncle had taken me to the to the um, Great Pyramid 
in Egypt when I was 18. He was a pilot for Transworld Airlines, and he took me to the Great Pyramid and had a guy take me up inside and leave me in the king's chamber alone. And there was nobody else in the tomb, nobody else in the entire pyramid. He took me out there on a camel, for Christ's sake, and, and uh, there was nobody around except some archaeologists. And there was no light inside. He had to burn this magnesium ribbon to take me up into the tomb. And I was standing in that tomb that day all alone because the guy who left me in there, he said, your uncle wants you to be in here alone. And um, he left me in there, and he went out, and he was real quiet. He had to crawl out this tunnel. And I was in pitch black, and uh, I will never forget that experience. And I stepped out of that tomb knowing somehow my life was going to be a grand adventure. But I swear, when I got to, to uh, North Beach, and I was meeting people like Janis Joplin, although I loved her singing... None of us thought we would ever be famous or anything like that. And it was just the kids. The, the kids were all getting together <laughs> from all different parts of the country because they heard about the beats from Detroit and New York and Chicago and New Orleans. People, were, musicians and stuff were arriving and forming rock bands. And the whole thing was taking off. And then certain people started to get success. Like Hoyt did a record called The Greenback Dollar. And it was actually put out on a record. We had it on the jukebox, and we were so proud of him. Wow. Record, man. <laughs> and that was okay to have a record or something like that, because then that meant they were coming after you. You weren't going out and trying to get them to make you famous. If they came to you, that was the rule in North Beach. If something came to you, like they wanted to do a story of your art in the newspaper, that was fine. But they had to come to you. You couldn't go down to the paper and say, hey, man, put me in the paper. If you did that, did Which you? Which I found out later is how it works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean people would? Do you think people secretly went to the paper and were like, hey, I'm here? I think Ginsburg did. Oh, really? He was, oh well, he was kind of brilliant that way. He did things to be sure and get in the paper. Like he would take off all his clothes, climb on a cafe table, a crowded cafe, and and read Howell. Once you've seen Allen Ginsberg nude, you really don't care for that show again. But uh, <laughs> I was, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I was there. You know, it was it was like a real exciting time when people did things that were like. He was a poet. He was a real poet. He took off his clothes like a real poet does, made himself completely naked, and got up and read a poem. And five lines into the poem, you didn't realize he was naked anymore. It was like, but you were aware that something was moving, something was happening. And part of that was the Vietnam War. Um, that was, you could tell from the parades and the, the demonstrations and things that. There was unrest and there was a, a feeling of a heightened uh, awareness about certain areas of American culture. And there was, but mostly it was about making art. Um, we were generally the most un. Um, most of the people I knew, like Janice and me and others, we stayed away from politics. It was about the songs we were writing, the 
people we were meeting, the paintings we were making, the writings, the poems, it was all about that. And that's why to have the FBI follow me all my life has been kind of silly because I was, you know, there and I was in the beat generation. Then you get to be on their list. They come and check you out every now and then. The last one that came was a really nice guy. I taught him how to paint on glass. Reverend, uh, no, uh, Reverend, what was his name? Uh, it's, Special agent, special agent. Wait, wait an, <laughs> an agent came to visit you, and you were like, I'm going to teach you how to paint? Yeah, well, he asked me if I would show him some tricks. And, and so we got some glass, and I showed He wanted to do some T-shirts for the FBI thing. You know? <laughs> I don't know what they do. with. He, well, I think he wanted to sell them in, like, gun magazines and stuff. And um, so anyway, he made me a painting, and he brought it back about two weeks later unannounced, just knocked on the studio door. I opened it up. Hey, Ben, how are you doing? He comes in, he's got this painting for me, and it's uh, it's about two feet by two feet. It's It's got um, a, up in one corner, he's written, to my favorite artist, Dave Archer, um, thanks for the tips. <laughs> like I'm an FBI tipster. And then, then down the other corner, he's got the the symbol of the FBI, the Department of Justice. Then he's got his business card, Special Agent Ben Davis, down in the other corner, and, and uh, he gave me that as a gift. That's one of my favorite things in life. I take it on stage with me sometimes. And But uh, the painting itself was he painted on glass. He painted a uh, tax squad with four guys in complete bug outfits. Uh, you know, I guess they're headed for my door. I, I don't know. I, like uh, one of my favorite things, this this tax squad <laughs> by the FBI agent that was sent to, to find out what I was doing. <laughs> what what year was that roughly when he when they were coming snooping around your house? That was before I, moved, that was before I moved up here to uh, Oregon. Uh, he he came to the studio. He came to a showing of my work. Because this has been going on for a long time with me, he came to a showing of my work and said I was his favorite artist, and that he would love to be able to visit my studio, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and gave me his card, and he was special agent, and and, uh, and I liked him. He was really, really interesting guy. Uh, we yeah, talked about many top. Yeah, because if I remember correctly, you never really. I think you went to like one, one or two war protests because somebody. I went, I went to one war protest because my friend, and I was against the war in Vietnam, but I just I was just on to something else. We were just so busy doing what we were doing that we were really not very non-political, and uh, in some ways, in other ways, there was a lot of political poetry being written and stuff like that, but it didn't interest me. Um, I never have been very political. I just find it, you know, I stagger for the door when, when they start. Um, but, um, yeah, it was uh, hard to try and figure out exactly why that happened in North Beach in this, such a small little neighborhood that pretty soon everybody was there that was, you know, Johnny Mathis coming in where I was doorman, he was singing at 
around there, and he was coming in when I was doorman trying to pick me up. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. There were, everybody was there, Woody Allen. And they were all doing their very first, they were just starting out. Dreisand was unknown. Had everybody. And I and I can't think of another time in America, unless maybe Tin Pan Alley or sometime in New York or in, in Harlem or something, where all these really interesting creative people got together like that. And I mean, the guy that wrote uh, "Love Is But a Song We Sing and Fears the Way We Die," that guy Dino Valente, he was there every night singing in one of the clubs. And you can't go see an old Vietnam War movie or anything without hearing that song in the background, like an anthem of the age. Come on, people, get together, try and love one another right now. And there, you know, Tim Harden died of heroin. A lot of these people didn't make it either. They passed away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird because you think of, actually, it's you think of that era, especially San Francisco, that everybody's political, and you do often, and you associate uh, sex and drugs, and it wasn't really that way for everybody, was it? Oh, some of these people like Tim Harden were hardcore heroin addicts, and he took a wrong shot one night, and that was that. You know, right when he could have been—I mean, he was really writing songs that were getting recognition. But you—you—I mean, you weren't much. You—you you were more of a drinker, right? I was a drinker. Yeah, that was my nemesis from uh, all the way back in high school. I was—I was taken out of the high school graduation dance. On a stretcher, taken away in an ambulance. The doctor told me the next morning if he hadn't pumped my stomach, I would have been dead in five minutes. Jesus. When when did you when did you realize <clears throat> that maybe that needed to go? When I was married and had my first kid, it was time to get out of that. Um, it ruined my marriage <clears throat> and it uh, broke my heart so bad that it caught my attention. I didn't like, I, you know, it was one thing for me to go around hurting myself, another thing to hurt other people. Uh, I couldn't live with hurting other people. So right around the time I started painting on glass was when I started sobering up and staying that way. And just to go back to San Francisco, too, was it like when you were in San Francisco recently? Because it is, it seemed shockingly different to me, and I hadn't been there in. Oh, God. oh, I was so depressed by the time we got out of there. I was all excited to show my young student, you know, this incredible place. He was having a ball. He didn't know the difference, you know. It's it's really exotic if you've never been there. You got Chinatown right there. You got the. the the Cafe Trieste. We did go in the Trieste and have a cup of coffee. And, uh, I went down to the, took him down to Big Al's where I worked for so long for the mob. The mob guys there that owned uh, Big Al's. It's now it's just around the corner and it's just a dive. But in those days they had a five-piece band and really good singers. The topless dancing started there with uh, with. Uh, 
Next door was the Condor, where uh, Carol Dota danced on the piano. I was able to take the kid into the old barn. They still had the piano hanging from the ceiling. She used to come down on the top of the piano dancing, but she had to crawl down a little uh, attic crawl space and be careful she didn't mess up her two-foot-high wig and crouch on top of the piano. And then when the cue came, the piano guy would flip a switch on the piano and down it would come and she'd start to stand up and it would look like she was coming out of a big room. Sometimes Tommy Stewart, the midget, would come down with his little tuxedo on, dancing between her legs. And, uh, yeah, Tommy was great. He used to get guys that wanted him to have sex with their wives. He got paid a lot of money. He'd tell me every time, you know, oh, man, I got $1,200 last night. You should have seen her. She was so beautiful. And all he did was sit in the corner of the room up there at the Fairmont and watch us. That's amazing. <laughs> Life will never change. (laughs) So I got to show him where the guy got killed on the piano. Eddie the Beard was in there one night late when the club was still open. As it as it was when the Condor was really the Condor, he was in there one night, and uh, with a cocktail waitress, and they were having a lovemaking match, shall we call it, on top of the piano. And she was nude, and he was nude, except he was wearing cowboy boots. Go figure that one. And um, evidently he was, uh, at the the time this happened, he was in a kind of odd position on top of the piano with her on her back, and he was, as they say, yodeling in her canyon. And um, the toe of his cowboy boot must have hit the switch because it sent the piano up very slowly and they didn't notice it was going up and when it hit the ceiling it pushed his face into her crotch so far that he smothered to death in her crotch and she uh was saved because he had been a Eddie the Beard he had been, he'd been a uh, he'd gone out for the Dallas Cowboys so he had this huge shoulders you know and it gave her a breathing space and the janitor came in in the morning. He saw these two cowboy boots sticking out from the top of the piano. And he heard this voice saying, help. The, the fireman had to cut a hole with a chainsaw to get her out of there because the motor, it went up on cables and the motor didn't have a clutch, so it burned out. <laughs> and he died? Anyway, the guy died. Eddie the Beard died with his boots on. That's it. That's a fucking incredible... That's insane. And that's the true story of what happened that night at the Condor. The firemen all know the true story, but uh, that story came to me from the owner of the Condor, uh, uh, Pastore. Walter Pastore told me that story. And um, he said, now you know the true story. They couldn't print it in the Chronicle, you know, they couldn't put it in there. <laughs> How did they say he died? They said, well, they, they were evidently on top of the piano, but they didn't, you know, say what they might be doing. And, and the piano accidentally went up and crushed them. <laughs> and Walter's told me, he says, yeah, she's still not in good shape. After that night, she she doesn't even want to hear the word sex. 
Yeah, that would uh, put a damper on things for at least for a while. Yeah, I think Walter was intimating that it might be like years. <laughs> how, they, how long were they stuck there? Well, they were up there for hours. They were hours. up there for like probably like eight that happened till morning. Around three o'clock. That happened about three o'clock in the three three thirty in the morning, and they were up there till janitor came in at like nine o'clock. Yeah, I could see how that could be scarring for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you tell that story to guys, and they all go, "Oh God!" Tell it to women, and they all go, "Oh God!" Exactly the same reaction. <laughs> I wish I was. I was wish I would have gone in there. I wish I'd have known that story and gone in there when I was just in that neighborhood because <laughs> that would have been an. Yeah, if you go in there, it's it's now this place with little booths where you can go in with a girl into a booth and all that bullshit. And uh, it's just a shadow of what it used to be, but uh, I, the piano's still up there hanging up at the is top it just, of the ceiling. What do you think has gone wrong with San Francisco? Is it just because it's become flooded so much with money? And I mean, it's I walked around there, and everybody I saw, unless they were a crazy homeless person, I was like, oh, you probably are, you've got to make a lot of money, because you can't even live in that city as an artist anymore, can you? I don't know how you could. In my day, we paid $45 a month for a single room. We called it a piss-in-the-sink hotel room. and um, But they were adequate for... You could have a hot plate and stuff, and we survived as artists. Every artist in North Beach, every musician, every artist had a, a little room. Those were all turned over to prisoners being released from San Quentin. And the rents are now way up, you know. To seven, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars a month, and um, and you could always make enough money to pay that rent and and have enough to eat and stuff. Chinatown, you could get a full dinner for a dollar and a quarter. So that included ribs, rice, and cabbage, and a drink. So you know you could you could make it there. Now I don't know what they would do. Um, but there, uh, North Beach has always employed a lot of people, but everything looked dead to me. Everything just looked... What happened was they degenerated from the, the fun of the topless, then they went into the bottomless. First, the cops came in big house and they said, you can't show pubic hair, you can't do that, that's against the municipal law. You got So the girls went down to the Lou Serban's dance art studio and they bought this fur and they cut it in triangles and they glued it. First they shaved, then they glued it with surgical rubber. So when they went on stage, they were wearing a false pubic hair. Then the cops came in. Hey, you guys, we told you, you cannot have pubic hair. And they said, that's not pubic hair. Come here. Take them over there with flashlights, you know. They like that job. <laughs> and they, hey, yeah, yeah, no, really. Hey, girls, come here, look. Show them, it's just a costume. Peel that back there a little. Yeah. I can't peel it back. If I peel it back, I'll have to go back down and glue it on again. Okay, okay. I see it. It's yeah, yeah. That's just that. That's not real. Okay, okay. Then that's okay. And then after a few months of wearing the wigs, which the girls were complaining about, like hell, because they'd peel off during the dance and it was a nightmare. They um. They allowed them then to wear uh to just 
have the bottomless. And then it went to the next level and the next level and the next level. So you get to this gynecological thing they have now where you go in. And the idea of some of these clubs is you go in and the girl, the dancers, they, they come up and they spread their cooch right in the guy's face and he's sitting at a table and he leans in and he's like a, he's like doing a gynecological examination i said to walter walter what's that guy doing he's looking at, what is he doing well he says he can't touch her but he can look i said that's insane and he said oh yeah yeah dave it's a whole different world now i'm getting out he says i'm going I, i'm retiring i'm gonna i'm gonna leave but that's what it became. And I said, oh, man, we had bands. We had musicians. We had comics. We had performers. What happened? And that's what they need. Um, they need an entrepreneur like, uh, you know, the great uh, Enrico. Enrico's Cafe. And he was the one that brought all those wonderful acts out. To, uh, he brought Barbara Streisand out here. He brought all the people out that played and He would go. He was a guy that would go around and find young talent. And you just you need a you need certain conditions. And I don't really know what those conditions are. That you had the beats, which drew a lot of people, but and then you had the beauty of San Francisco. You had the the fact that it was mostly an Italian neighborhood and hadn't turned Chinese yet. Mostly it was Italians. So there was that culture, and then right across the street was Chinatown. So you had everything going right there in that one little area, and there was lots of little venues where people could perform. The Hungry Eye was started by Enrico, meant the hung hungry intellectual. That was started by Enrico in the basement of the Columbus Tower. Yeah, it was... Um, I, I often wonder... What kind of angel guides me? Because I was, I could have gone anywhere at that point. I was away from schooling with Phil Paradise. I was pretty much on my own. My father had passed away on Father's Day. I gave him a plaid shirt. Boy, I never wore plaid again. I thought I killed him with dirt, you know. Jesus. But uh, he had passed away, and I went to live with my uncle, who was uh, a famous pilot. He had been with Howard Hughes in the early days. Um, he was in partnership with the actor Fred McMurray uh, up near Santa Rosa. So I went up there and I became a herdsman and took care of the herd and, and did all that. Went to Santa Rosa, J.C. And then um, I talked a couple of friends into from high school. I said, you know, I'm going to leave San, this... Uh, Santa Rosa Junior High, I'm leaving that at junior college. And why don't we get some bicycles and bicycle all the way down through Mexico? And I thought it was a great idea. I was, geez, I was only 19, and I talked them into it. And um, I said, if we don't do this now, then we'll get to be these old farts, and we won't have done any, and we'll say, we should have done that. And I, I don't want to be that guy that sits around saying, we should have done a great adventure, you know. So his parents never, their parents never forgave me, I, I guess. But off we took. We shipped our bikes to Tucson and drove off down through the Mexican desert in August. Brilliant.
brilliant idea. <laughs> we went through the Sonora Desert on bicycles in August, and boy, oh boy, were we thirsty. <laughs> Uh, we made it. We made it down to Guaymas, cut our plans short, decided not to go to the tip of Tierra del Fuego after all, <laughs> found us a nice uh, place on a beach there and lived for a couple of months on the beach. We were all just young as hell and having quite an adventure. And uh, When I got back, I went to North Beach and walked right into the scene and had no idea where I was or what I, you know, I knew North, I, the only thing I knew about North Beach was our hometown paper, the Telegram Tribune, put put a, a Beatneck article in it, like a Beat Generation, San Francisco, and it had this one photograph, and it had like 12 or 15 Beat Generation people. There was Ginsburg and all these people in this photograph, and I said, myself, I got to go there because those guys are artists and I don't know where else to go. You know, I want to go be in the beat generation because I don't, I need to be around other artists. I just had this feeling I should be around other artists. So that's why I went there. And the reason they were in the paper was Ginsburg's poem, Howell, was going up to the Supreme Court on obscenity. And as a young artist, that kind of excited me, the fact that an artist could get in so much trouble he'd have to go to the Supreme Court. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So I took my little suitcase and got on a Greyhound bus in San Luis Obispo, and off I went to North Beach and, and met all those people, and we all survived together. Everybody helped everybody else, and really something well uh so then we, in 1970 i went into glass painting with ron russell and on i go I ended up on working in the hollywood movies and doing my work was used on yes yeah, star, star trek, trek the yeah that's uh yeah and that's that's legendary i mean i've told people about that and they're like oh that guy <laughs> it's like the people that's yeah a, yeah, that that was one of the most fun things in the world to have happen, and I was kind of jaded by then. I'd been giving a lot of interviews and doing a lot of TV shows by the time that came along, and, and uh, I just didn't believe it. It was just too good to be true, and I just could not believe it. My agent called me up and told me he got me this incredible deal, and, and um, so it came. Uh, then my paintings were appearing, and my children would yell out of the living room, "Dad, Dad, your paintings!" And I'd go running from the kitchen. Oh, you missed it! A, a Klingon just walked past your painting, Dad. You know, and uh, I still didn't really get it. But one night I was sitting there eating a plate of spaghetti by myself, and the show came on, and I saw my painting in front of, in back of uh, Captain Picard, and I just about dropped my plate. I was sitting on the floor, and I was holding a plate, eating spaghetti, and there was my pain. And I said, oh, my God. How did that happen? That could, I mean, that could be any other space artist. That could be, oh, my God. So there was some kind of angel pushing me around. I don't know. 
you should go this way or you should go that way. And I, I had some kind of guide, I think. Well, that's um. Th- thank you, David. I have to wrap it up at at this time because we've we've hit over an hour. But uh, I, I want to thank you very okay, much, man. Dave, for uh, taking out the time to do this. It was really incredible. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I don't. Uh, I, I have so many directions I can go. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor and go to my page on feralaudio.com and, and donate some money. Uh, it helps us. You know, we make a lot of sacrifices here so we could uh, do this show. And uh, so, you know, Dustin Marshall, my uh, producer and stuff, you know, help put foods in our mouth and get me books that I read so I can interview fancy people who write those books. If you can't afford to donate, I totally understand. You can go to... Uh, you can go to uh, the same page there on Feral Audio and uh, buy some stuff on Amazon, and I get a kickback of that. I get a kickback there. Uh, that's good. Also, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire. Also, please write a review on iTunes. That would be really helpful. Please do that. And uh, listen to the other shows at Feral Audio. Thank you. I love you. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.